Welcome to Psychosocial Cinema, the podcast in which friends, family, and strangers discuss some of their favorite movies while digging for deeper meanings that drive us in the real world. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Psychosocial Cinema. Tonight, we are discussing a film that, for for whatever reason, I never saw in my youth. And as a 34-year-old, I'm finally getting around to seeing Sam Mendes' um, American Beauty. And this is a film that won a lot, I believe, won a lot of awards back in the day. And I'm I'm happy to discuss it tonight because I have a fellow friend and podcaster of mine on tonight, Allison Ryan. She she is one of the co-hosts for the show Cinemadness, the podcast. And might I add, she is the lone female on that show. So she carries a lot of gusto and command when she talks. And for that reason, I am I'm just really overjoyed to have her here tonight. This has been a long time coming and even to get here tonight to record this has been odd to say the least. So Allison, welcome on. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. And yeah, like you said, it's been a long time coming. I remember talking about getting um, together to discuss Parasite, which was yeah. last year. And, uh, you know, we're both really busy and just never got around to it. So I'm super excited to be on. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Um, I've only had the privilege of essentially speaking to dudes on the show. And so I'm like, it really dawned on me that this has been a gigantic dude party. And I, re- I really need to get some different voices on this podcast. And from the few times that you all have allowed me to hang out as a cool kid at the table on your show, I've been greatly impressed, not just in the way that you carry yourself in conversation, but just the knowledge that you have about cinema and music and you are a gigantic nerd in that regard. Oh, so I felt I felt like that this was an easy fit yeah. to ask you thank and you. to have you on here. I appreciate that. No problem. And, you know, I know we could shoot directly into the film here, but tell us a little bit more about your podcast. I would like to hear what y'all are up to if you're in the midst of recording anything in particular, all that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, like Jonathan said, I am one of three podcasters on Cinemadness, the podcast. Uh, we started about a year ago, and it's just three friends talking about movies. Um, we just started our second season, as we call it. But due to COVID, uh, you know, for the last couple of months, we haven't been able to get together. So we ventured out onto Zoom and started doing Zoom casts. So you could finally see our faces. 
We uploaded our videos to YouTube. Um, it got a lot of good feedback. Um, it was a little awkward for us at first because you could finally see our faces. Um, so you could see if I had that look on my face because I can't hide my expression. So you could just see that look on my face when I didn't agree with somebody. But I kind of got into it and I liked it. Um, so when we when we can get together now due to um, obviously COVID and, and you know, we have struggles where we're um, not able to get together due to just life. Um, so, you know, when we can get together, we want to. Um, we did an episode a couple of weeks ago that's on Spotify, but it was just kind of all over the place right now. And um, But we're lucky that we have a great active Facebook page that we engage with our um, fellow listeners and uh, that keeps us um, you know, hip to what's going on with our, our, <laughs> our fan base. But, um, yeah, we, we loved having Jonathan on. We talked about the Joker. If you want to go back last season to one of our episodes, it was one of my favorite episodes. It was really good, but, um, yeah, so that's, that's us. Thank you for sharing that little yeah. ditty right there. <laughs> and it, it literally launching directly from that. Oh my God, I'm, I, I knew of the general premise of this film we're mm -hmm. going to talk about mm -hmm. tonight. And when you brought it up, and don't mind me if I'm a little forward in how I speak on this, you you know, right out of the gate, I know there's been controversy surrounding Kevin Spacey. Mm -hmm. um, right. Let's just, I'll use therapy speak for poor choices he's made in his life. And while watching this film, and the character of Lester that he portrays there. I, and I'm not, hmm, I'm having thoughts here. This, it did not detract from the performance mm -hmm. or the film itself. And I know that's something you highlighted when we were talking about this right. and what one of your reasons for picking this film. And that's something I, I definitely did take time to like talk with my wife about even where I was like, you know, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. But um, I'm I'm of a unique mindset, and I'll throw this out there for anyone who may listen to this and wonder why I give time or space to Kevin Spacey and talking about one of his films. As a mental health counselor, I work with a lot of people. At times, those people are the perpetrators. And many times they are the victims and the people who are living through the fallout of what they've experienced. Um, Allison knows a little bit just from trying to coordinate this, this episode tonight that work can be very difficult at times and crises can come up somewhat frequently. And with that, it gives me humbly so an air of understanding and talking about this stuff and doing so comfortably that doesn't minimize hurts that people have gone through and at the same time not celebrating someone needlessly if you will but at the same time finding a way to acknowledge art right. and to have a safe and healthy conversation around right. that right right allison your thoughts on that because you i appreciate you for like even initiating that conversation before we got into this. Yeah. So a little bit of backstory, when you reached out, um, you know, you wanted me to think of a movie that um, inspired me or, you know, something like that meant a lot to me. And I sat back and I, I talked to my husband and I also talked to um, Adam and Roman who are on the podcast with me. And I said, you know what? I can't come up with a movie 
that changed my life or that inspired me. And I got a little sad about that. But then I realized, I think there's a reason behind that. So for example, if if you grow up wanting to be a director, you could say Steven Spielberg, you know, inspired you. So Jaws is a movie that, you know, inspired you. You saw that movie and you said, you know what? I want to be a director. That movie inspired me to go on my career path. I didn't uh, the job that I have now, although I love my job, it's not something that I ventured out to do, you know, out of college. I was going to be a teacher. I changed my mind. I just kind of got into this. So I can't look back and think of a movie that inspired me. I just love movies. They make me happy. They make me sad. I just love cinema. So then I started thinking, well, is there a movie that I've seen multiple times that affected me? either positively, negatively. I thought that it was beautiful, you know, that I could have a lengthy discussion with you about that also has so many layers. And I thought of this movie, I actually brought up three movies to you, but this was my number one pick and I'm glad you were on board with this one. And I thought of American Beauty because it has so many layers, so many characters and so many issues in this movie. And then the whole Kevin Spacey thing got in my mind and I said, oh, you know, Kevin Spacey, he is just kind of blackballed right now in Hollywood. But I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about this film. I can separate the man from Lester. I, I, I appreciate Kevin Spacey as an actor. I think he's phenomenal. I don't want to talk about his personal life. We're talking about what he is in the movie. So I can appreciate the fact that people can remove themselves and just focus on the movie and not focus on the drama that's surrounding him in his personal life. So, mm-hmm. um, cause you know, I, I get it. It's, it's a, it's a touchy subject. Um, but we're here to talk about the movie and his portrayal of this character. Yes. Very well put there. And going into this film, when it came time to do my viewing for it, it was it. This was a more difficult watch for me. And I think subconsciously on some level outside of the stuff from work that was preventing us to get around to recording this. I almost found like an aversion to wanting to watch the movie, mm-hmm. not because of anything that we're talking about here, but largely due to, I would say stuff that I'm exposed to at work with like dysfunction, mm-hmm. a, a lot of discord, if you will, within families that don't know what it means to have healthy communication or to actually communicate in their health in a healthy manner their feelings right and rather than getting lost in the content and the uuus of what's being said and this film if i can make an odd comparison really gave me some similar vibes to when i watched uncut gems Mm. and this is a bit of a stretch but i think you'll vibe with it because you you and adam had a similar experience that i did when seeing that in theaters and there's something to be said about really good human drama that's depicted in cinema and the impact, the immediate emotional impact that it can have on you either for, for me, it's for a number of different reasons, but I distilled it down to a couple of things with American beauty in general, either because of our exposure to this kind of stuff in our lives, whether that be family, um, friend groups, what have you, or I just 
my 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 brain is almost hitting a wall with this right here. Just that the difficulty in processing dysfunction, and I I would say for a living of what I do, and then watching it in cinema has really given it a different definition for me and in some ways has tainted my ability to like sit back and to like whimsically enjoy a film. Mm-hmm. But by the time the credits rolled for this, I was able to sit back and appreciate the film for for what it is mm-hmm. and for the for the I would say the timely reflection that it asked the viewers to consider when examining their life and the choices they make and how brief we are on this planet for. I think that's something with the loss of my dad recently. And I, I, if I start to sound like a broken record on any of these episodes, it's okay. This is how I'm grieving still. And it's not something that I can just easily walk by. Um, This movie really tapped into some of that for me, especially some of the narration that Kevin Spacey does throughout it. And any film that taps into human mortality and the how fleeting it can be really does a number on me these I'm days. Sure. I, I can really understand. Yeah. Pardon me if I'm getting ahead of myself, but yeah. So that, that made this, I want to say this was my, don't laugh at me for this. My actual initial viewing of this film I had only seen bits and clips of this film on like syndicated TV mm-hmm. and through the movie trailers. And as a young teenager who had, I'm, I'm, is it, I'm going to get her name. Is it Mina Suvari who plays yeah. the, the, her friend Grace, or is that the daughter? I'm already butchering names. Jane, it's okay. Jane's the daughter and Angela is the, is um the cheerleader character. The, the friend. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm nervous talking about this because I know you're a cinephile and you know your shit. No, 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 no. no, no. It's funny. I I hadn't watched this movie in a few years, probably at least five years, but this movie came out in 1999 and I remember going to the theater. This shows my age. So I was 19 and I went to the theater to see it because everybody was like, oh, this movie, it's so good. It's going to win all the Oscars, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay, you know, it's got that girl from American Pie in it. <laughs> you know, let's go see it. And I, I was like, what? I didn't know what I was getting into. And I walked into that movie like, oh, holy hell, what did I just watch? You know, and I think yeah. at 19, yeah, I kind of got it, but I didn't. And then so many viewings later where I've watched it with other people or I've watched it, you know, it's been on TV. And then again, last week when I popped in my DVD and watched it again, I mean, I asked myself, does this movie still hold up? And in a way it does. I mean, obviously you can see it's a little dated, but the the general consensus is yes, we can still – um, feel the same that these characters are feeling. We can still we can still say that a lot of people are just like these characters that we saw. So um, each time that I see this movie, I see a little bit more, um, and I think that's that's what makes it so brilliant is when you can watch a movie over and over again and and see different things and different sides of things that you've never seen before. Um, and I know we'll get into this later, but especially the symbolism in this movie. This movie has so much symbolism. Um, that I would like to hear from you, just from your point of view, given how many times you've seen the film. Yeah, I, I may be jumping the shark with this a little bit here, 
but the title that I came up with for tonight's episode is American Appearances. Oh, I love that. My... What I would say one of my big takeaways, besides what I've been rambling about here already, is, again, the hurt that we lock down inside and the appearances we have to keep for society, for work, for our friend circles, even our children. Mm-hmm. And like that, and not acknowledging at times the immediate emotional consequences that can have on the people who are closest and dearest to us. Mm-hmm. That right there may be the most painful element of this film for me because as a clinician i think the whole time i'm watching it i'm just like cupping my face and thinking my word would they benefit from some couples counseling oh sure my my god would this young teenage girl here probably benefit from some therapy with somebody who can be present and listen right and actually use some trauma-informed principles while help in her process what she's lived through with her parents who have had a essentially a cold marriage which seems like for many years at this point yeah um but speaking of symbolism not that i want to put you in the spotlight here would you mind elaborating on that a little sure. bit? Yeah, the, I mean, the main symbolism in this movie is the color red um Everywhere you look in this movie, you will see red used. And it's not just the obvious, um, the red roses. Every time he fantasizes, every time Lester um, fantasizes about his teenage daughter's friend, Angela, um, she's surrounded by red rose petals. Um, So right off the bat, anytime you see the rose or the red roses, you think, okay, well, that's, that's lust for Lester. Um, the beginning of the movie shows Carolyn, um, played by, um, oh my God, why am I losing her, her name? She's one of my favorite actresses, Annette Benning, who is phenomenal in this movie. Um, Carolyn Burnham, Lester's wife, the, the moment we see her, she's clipping her roses with her garden shears that match her clogs, that match her outfit. And she, you know, is pruning these beautiful red roses, the red door on their house, their, their house, their entire house is plain. It's white, it's Brown, it's blue. It's just a regular old suburban house. But throughout the house, you'll see this bright red door. You'll see the roses inside. You'll see a red book. Um, when Lester's leaving the house in the morning and he's fumbling around and she's like, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to be late for work. And he drops all of his papers. His papers fall out of a red folder. So throughout this movie, red is everywhere. Um, and it, it, it means different things to, to the different characters, I feel. So, you know, again, the roses are the lust for Lester. The red for Carolyn is this strive for perfection. Um, when she looks at um, Buddy, who is one of her, one of the fellow um, real estate agents who she ends up having an affair with, his billboard when she drives by his his face is is on a billboard um on a bus stop it's red so everywhere that 
it's just red is everywhere. And the more I watch this movie, I see it. And I, I like movies like that, where you see these little things and you're like, huh, that that's what they want you to look at. They want you to see this door that's red. They want you to see um, that, you know, the color of his screen is red at his computer and it shows anger. And um, I just think that was really, really interesting to me. So I think the main takeaway for symbolism in this movie is red and, and how it can be different different layers, I guess, for different people. It can be anger, it can be lust, it can be perfection. Um, but that to me is Sam's way of saying this is the beauty. This is the American beauty. Is this red? If that makes and any sense. <laughs> no, that that t- that totally makes sense. And because the devil was in the details with that. And mm-hmm. upon my viewing here, I did I noticed the cinematography was exceptional for this film. Yes. The, the, the framing and the focal points did make the more obvious uses of red. But the, and for me, it was the door. Mm-hmm. The, the, the house door was just very, there's something foreboding about it, mm-hmm. at least when they would frame that house. And, you know, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen it, for the murder that happens at the end of the film, I almost feel like that is like that door could be symbolizing the the death within. And if we even want to get like metaphorical here, you know how we as human beings can die a slow death on the inside when we're not being our authentic selves, however you want to define that. And that's another thing, especially Kit Carolyn. Oh my gosh. Oh, she's my favorite. She's my favorite character. And, and the, <laughs> She, um, aside from the fact that it's Annette Benning, and I don't think anybody could have played her any better than her. She's brilliant. But there's a little, and, and she's not going to listen to this. My mother, I'm speaking of, she's not going to listen to this, so I can't offend her. But there was little things in this movie that reminded me of my mother. Now, I don't want you to, to take this that my mother is a crazy person that cheated on my dad. But my mother... Growing up, my mother always wanted to present herself as not necessarily perfect, but um, she was always kept, always had the makeup on, always had her hair done. She always dressed well. Um, The house was always tidy. We liked to have people over for holidays and everything was perfect. And when I first saw this movie and I saw Carolyn and how she was like, I'm going to sell this house today. And she was telling herself that she was going to do this. And then when she saw um, Jane, Jane put on this little like, I don't know, half-assed cheerleader dance thing in the, in the, in the um, high school. And Mm -hmm. they went and saw her. And when they, um, they told her she did a good job, she says, Oh, Jane, I was watching you the whole time and you didn't screw up once. And it's like, she thinks she's being nice the way she's saying that. But it was like, why did you have to say it like that? That was my mom. She would always do little things like that. Like I watched you and you were great. And you didn't screw up once or you didn't do that. And it was just it's these little things that reminded me of her and it made me laugh. Um, so that's one character that I just, I just thought she was just so funny, but she was so unhappy. And I wonder, I don't believe that Lester and Carolyn have always been like this. I don't think that they were always, you know, doomed and they, they, they have no love in their marriage. I think it just gradually became that way. And it's so sad. And it's, it's, um, unfortunately, you know, that happens a lot in marriages, um, but it, it made me sad to see that their marriage was just crumbling. But 
I could see that there still was a little bit of love in both of them at times. And um, it just, it's just kind of, I don't know, sometimes I want to like have like a prequel of some of these characters, like what happened? What caused you to get this way? Um, mm-hmm. You know, and obviously we'll never know, but I could just see, you know, that they did, they, they still have this love. They're just putting on a show for everybody. And that's, I think, also what makes it even more painful because one, there's this very touching but brutal moment where Carolyn comes home and Lester's just chilling out on a chair with a remote control car. And she walks in and he zooms it into her foot. Right. And naturally she starts to rail into him. Right. And Lester at this point in the movie, he's he's occupied the role of a kind of like a jovial slacker who is trying to live his best life with is the least amount of responsibility. He's, you know, left his job. He's pretty much blackmailed his one of his like boss reps of that job to get out of it with a full year salary and benefits and all that. So he's in more ways than one high on life at this point and just really enjoying himself. And it's really, he has now found and embodied a different version of himself that gives him a lot more vigor and energy. And when he tries to approach Carolyn, when she comes in and starts to kind of like correct him for what he's doing, they share the most fleeting of moments of romance with each other. Mm-hmm. And this is on the heels of Carolyn having just recently had an affair with Buddy, the real estate mogul. And, you know, Lester, who's been fan fantasizing over his daughter's friend, the whole film, you know, where one of them is mentally in the thick, the thick of an affair. The other one is actually acted on it, but either way you cut it, both of them, both of them are at odds with their fidelity in this, in this relationship at this point. But man, they come so close to getting it on right there and just having some couch sex with each other and just (laughs) enjoying each other's company. And I'm watching this and I was rooting for them, Allison. I was like, the two of you, please do something. (laughs) And oh my God, you're going to spill beer on the couch. Allison, I I seize with my arms and my chest right now how uncomfortable that made me. And I'm like, you two had a moment. Yeah. Uh, and how good is that? Because their performances sell that right yeah. there. Yeah. And that's such a good uh, scene. That's such a good scene. She's just looking, you know, he's trying to kiss her and she's looking at this beer and she's like, you're going to spill beer on the couch. And then it's like, Oh my God, really? Like, why did you say that? And then he's like, it's just a couch. These are all just things. And she just can't see that because in her mind, you have to, I think Buddy said it, you have, in order to be successful, you have to project an image of success at all times. And her image of success is her material objects. And the fact that he was going to spill beer on that couch that was so expensive, nope, it would just, it, it wasn't worth it to her. And that right there was, I think at that point was the end of, of their whole relationship. Like there was no, <laughs> there was no going back for that for him at that point. He no. was like, no, we're, we're going in completely different directions. I'm I'm good. <laughs> and that and the, as the film continues from there, things just continue to kind of like spiral out of control with the two of them. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah, burping on some water here. <laughs> oh my God. But I, I would like, 
my wife and I cracked a joke after we got done with that. And I was like, I was like, the equivalency of the beer on the couch is this like me not washing some dishes and like going to kiss you and be like, John, there's dishes in the sink. <laughs> I'm just like, she she is such a good sport that she laughed about that. And I was like, I was like, God bless you for dealing with my my shit. That's so, funny. Um, speaking of going in different directions, though, one thing that we see throughout this entire film is baby Jane <laughs> as, mm-hmm. you know, the, the daughter who really is going in a completely different direction from her family because she's had enough and, you know, she's, I would say in a typical stereotype of kids, her age, just wanting to rebel and to be different, Mm -hmm. but she is not being valued. Um, Thor Birch, who I, I really need to get out, get out of the habit of calling her the hocus pocus girl. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and that that's for, that's one of her most endearing roles for me. Cause I grew up with that film and while I was watching this, I was quickly remembered without even knowing the actress's name. I was like, Oh, it's hocus pocus. in yeah. this. I completely forgot that. Yeah. And Holy smokes. Does she give a good performance? Oh yeah. And- she's good in anything she does. I don't know if you've ever seen ghost world with her and Scarlett Johansson. As a, I rented that as a teen, and uh-huh. my brain my brain was not mature enough at the time to get into that film and enjoy it. I yeah, need to go back and yeah. watch it. Yeah, I mean, she's great. I actually, after I watched this the other night, I um, looked on her IMDb because I was like, where's Thora Birch been? <laughs> she's not really doing much. But that's a shame because she is just phenomenal in this movie. I mean, she is the mm-hmm. epitome of the typical angry, insecure teenager. I mean, I, I think that all of us can relate to Jane in this movie, you know, her, she feels like her parents aren't listening to her. Um, she's trying to fit in with Angela. You you can see from the beginning that her and Angela shouldn't be friends. Well, not, they shouldn't be friends, but Angela is just using her to make her feel better. Um, Mm -hmm. she's just, you know, she's insecure with her body, um, she's reaching out to her parents and her parents don't give her the time of day. So I think everybody can relate to that, especially girls can relate to that. So I just think, yeah, she was, she uh, hit a home run with this, with this character. Yes, Yes, she did. I'm glad that you mentioned that the odd pairing of that relationship with her and Angela, where at the end of the day, I, and the film highlights this painfully between a with a conversation they share with each other Ultimately, it was really Angela who is seeking normalcy and validation through that friendship with Thora Birch. Mm-hmm. And that really does come crashing, crashing down when Angela and Lester literally walk to the precipice of like a <laughs> just getting it on with each other. And she says, this is my first time. Right. And in that moment you see the appearance that she's been holding up the whole film of being a very promiscuous budding model who's comfortable talking about her sexuality with with jane specifically and just random kids at school mm-hmm. and come to find out she's for all intents and purposes just an innocent youth we're looking at here and and that's something for Golly, as a man who doesn't have children of his own yet, but works with kids and is in a position to protect a lot of kids, 
the one of the things that I found myself getting really mad with, especially with Lester, because like throughout the whole film, I, I was looking at Alyssa. I'm like, if this was one of my families I was working with, this Lester is a DCF call waiting to happen. <laughs> like the, the whole time I could hear the the recorded message, you've reached the Florida News hotline. If you are a reporter in good faith, and I'm just like, yeah. I, I have that like burned into my my brain at this point. And I I celebrated internally when Angela said this is my first time and it was enough to repel Lester right, right. who had a who had a moment of lucid thinking where he was like oh my god this is this is a kid right this is not this is not some I, movie romance you know I, whatever was going through his mind to get to that point and to try to justify what he was about to do with a minor there um that I want to say that was probably one of the biggest moments in the film that caused like I say levity, not in the fun sense, but levity like huh, like yeah. weight off my shoulder and that right. she was able to escape from that. But also in the immediate fallout from that, where they were able to sit in the kitchen and to have a meal and Lester had a different aura about him where he wasn't accosting this young woman with his eyes anymore but he's you can tell through the performance that he saw her differently and was able to reframe that relationship there or maybe i'm just reading into no, that too you're, far no no you're actually absolutely right i feel in that um scene when he's at the kitchen table with her he is actually talking to her like he has wanted to talk to jane his daughter this whole time and he doesn't know how to and I think it was his way of of almost making himself selfishly feel better. Like, okay, I'll help my daughter's friend because this is, you know, this is um, how I would talk to her and kind of help her out and give her advice. I think it was, I think it was almost a little selfish, but um, I don't know if that makes any sense. But no, he, it does. You know it what does. I mean? Like, like, oh, I'll, I'll help, I'll help my daughter out by by talking to her friend and not sleeping with her. I don't know. It was a weird. Uh, it was a weird scene, but she, um, yeah, Angela is one of the other characters that's very, very layered. And, um, you know, Mina Savari did a good job. I think anybody probably could have played that role. Um, but she was like an it girl at that time after, you know, American Pie. But the funny part with her is I remember um, when the next door neighbor kid, um, Rick, Ricky? Yeah, Ricky. Uh, when he was videotaping them through the window and, and Jane's like, oh, he's recording me again. And she like opened the window and she's like, oh, okay. Hey. And she's like looking out and, uh, you know, like, oh, well he can videotape me. Um, but inside she, she's, she's just really insecure. I mean, she keeps telling everybody the worst thing in the world to be is, is ordinary. Um, when I think deep down inside, that's what she wants to be. She wants to be like everybody else and she wants to stop lying about, you know, what she has and has not done. Um, so yeah, she's a very complex character as well. There's all these complex characters, all of them. You could write like a thesis on every single one. <laughs> yeah. I, like I was doing some searches earlier this week and just like seeing how people like there are people out there who've like provided like mental health diagnoses for all these characters oh, sure, yeah. have, 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 who have gone into like personality related disorder related issues for them. And, you know, I found some of that stuff fascinating to read and 
Getting off that for a second, though, when you were talking about that scene where the two girls were in the room and Angela was dancing in the window Mm -hmm. and you just see Jane smiling in the mirror there. Yeah. Yeah. And And he's focusing on that. He focuses right past Angela. He wants nothing to do with her. And he focuses and zooms in on Jane. And he sees her kind of crack that little smile like she's happy that she's the one getting attention for once and not Angela. And that gives me chills right now, even when we're talking about that, because I, I'm definitely not Ricky Fitz and, and personality and social presentation, but man, did I vibe with his desire, even to, even though it's rather extreme in this film to want to see the beauty and the cracks of everything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I like how they use his, his camera and man, this is where you said the film dates itself. This, this makes our phones look like they're like, you know, the Hubble telescope, (laughs) what we can focus in on. And I like that they use the zooming in and the panning and the focusing is like a window into his brain for the minutia he's looking for Mm -hmm. as far as that beauty goes. And my favorite line from the film, I, I can't quote, but he's like, He's like, you know, I just can't take it sometimes. Like yeah. my heart's going to cave in on itself just from the beauty that I see around us. And Allison, I I like really want to like hear your heart <laughs> on this one because the older I get, not that I'm getting more cynical, but I have these flashes where I find myself caring about very useless shit, mm-hmm. whether it's material items, <laughs> like the Batman statue that I bought myself earlier this week, you know, <laughs> but, but granted, like I find myself going in and out of that kind of logic that Ricky talks about in the film where I only find fleeting enjoyment out of like the material goods that I surround myself with. But at the end of the day, it's when reality comes crashing down around me. And especially last night, the timing of this is good. Um, During my last counseling appointment for the night, I was notified on my phone that a, that a friend of mine from high school had died in June and his, his brother reached out to me informing me of this and apologizing that he didn't get a hold of me sooner. And on top of that, there was another friend of ours who died in a horrific car accident this past Sunday. And these were two, two guys who were within the same friend circle of people who would play halo together and do land parties and all that jazz. And just that whole final counseling session I was doing, I was present, but I haven't felt that mentally flat Mm -hmm. since my father died and hitting that point where my brain was being really triggered by something and I didn't have the words to describe. And that line from the movie where your heart feels like it's going to explode, whether it's for the joy, the anger, the sadness, anguish, whatever it is, like... I found myself really reflecting on that because, and I, I hope, I hope you're tracking what I'm saying here. If not, you can fly the crazy flag and tell me I didn't make sense here, but I'm just, I'm still trying to make sense of life and art and 
movies and all the stuff that, you know, that I find enjoyable, but still really struggle with in the wake of all these kinds of things. And that passion, I think what I'm just trying to say here is I appreciate the tears and the passion that he speaks with in the film because I find myself and that deep level of thinking more often than not. Yeah. Do you, do you find that happening to you at all at times? Yeah. Um, especially now that I have, you know, a child, um, I, I do still care about, you know, materialistic things. Of course, I like to have the nice things and, you know, my, I like to go buy things that make me happy, but now it's like, okay, so if you're going back to what he said, you know, sometimes there's so much beauty. Um, I feel my heart's going to burst. Um, yeah, I, I, I can vibe with that a little bit. Um, certain things now that I've, I'm older, you know, I, I see, I see little things, you know, through my son's eyes. And I guess I see that beauty. And sometimes it makes me, the difference between me and, and, um, Ricky is he's, I, I, he likes to take the pictures of these things and just like the bag. Okay. The, so the blowing paper bag, he thinks that's the most beautiful thing he has seen. Uh, I think that's one of the most iconic parts of the movie. People either made fun of it or thought it was brilliant. Um, and he said it, it was just like a child, you know, dancing, begging him to play with, with it. Um, and it's kind of like how he was going to stop and, and amongst all the chaos in his world and just focus on this, this whimsical bag. And I think I can relate to that because with all the hustle and bustle and stress in my world, I can just look at my kid just playing with a box or playing with his Legos or doing some silly thing. And I'm like, you know what? I can put whatever I'm doing down for five minutes and I can go in his world and I can, I can see things through his eyes. So I think I kind of relate that way where it's like, he's seeing things through his camera and I'm seeing things through my six year old now. And, Mm -hmm. um, that kind of levels me and, and kind of brings me down. Um, so I'm not, cause I'm a very, I'm a very emotional person. So I, um, I cry a lot and I worry a lot and I stress a lot. And as I'm getting older, I'm get I'm doing that more and more um, because I'm worrying about um, fatality and death and stuff. And, and um, so I think by pausing and trying to look for the little things like the floating mm-hmm. bag, um, I think that's healthy for people and healthy for me. Um, so that's how I relate to him when he's talking about that and the beauty in all the world. If that makes any sense, I'm rambling now. <laughs> it, no, it, it does. You're, you're tapping into some positive psychology right there. And that's something I work with clients on that, including my dog who's walking in here and trying to rampage with oh, me. Right Hudson. Now. Hudson just popped in and is <laughs> chomping at me. I'm going to give this a go for a second and see what happens. But um it definitely it makes sense from trying to <laughs> is mom home yet here? He's like looking out here. I don't know if she's back or what's going on. <laughs> but Allison, I'm gonna give you an insurmountable task here. Can you do a fake commercial for one minute while I go and let Hudson take a whiz out back? A fake commercial? Yes, talk about Cinematis, the podcast, and your best radio voice that you can. <laughs> okay. But right. anybody who's listening to this, roll with this for a second. I'll be right back. Okay. 
So on Cinemanus the Podcast, we are huge fans of horror movies. Not horror movies, but horror movies. And uh, you know, it's October, so lots of scary movies are out. So we are in the midst of doing our retro reviews, and we're doing retro reviews on all the Nightmare on Elm Street series and Phantasm. And I've never seen one Phantasm movie, so I'm learning a lot because um, my my leader, Adam, of the podcast has been watching every one of them and doing a YouTube video um, and reviewing all of them. And uh, I still don't want to watch them because they sound like they're really cheesy. But, you know, if you guys like horror, you might like that. But uh, yeah, we uh, we love this time of year. It's my favorite time of year. Next to Christmas, because we love Christmas movies too. Oh, wow. Okay. Look at that. What a I, great commercial, Allison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh. Oh, my Lord. Okay. <laughs> so I was saying, I liked how you said that bit with your son and trying to see through things through his eyes and acknowledging the good that we do have because for all the emotional rambling that I did there trying to like posit that question to you, the response to that, and I, I know this answer, but I struggle with it, is to try to operate my mind from a place of gratitude and focusing on things that I do have and not not being constantly mired in the things that I don't or problems that I perceive to be insurmountable. And so much, so much of this movie, and I think what makes it so powerful for the drama that's on display is simply because they, they don't see the goodness that they have until it's gone in the final moments of the film, especially Lester who, we we haven't even talked about the the Ricky Fitz's family yet, and that that's I know. We'll, we'll we'll get to that in a second here. But actually, let's let's do that before I even talk about what I'm, what I'm going to speak about. There, you have you have Lester's family, and then right across from them you have the Fitzes who talk about an even colder family and appearances that are being kept when you first saw this film. And I know you already said as a teen that you had a hard time maybe not fully understanding it. But as a teenager, how did you vibe with that family? Oh, they are so uncomfortable. So uncomfortable. Um, I didn't even realize until probably my third or fourth time watching this film that the mother, Ricky Fitz's mother, was played by Allison Janney, who is normally a very vocal and vibrant um, actress. And she is so toned down and just stripped away of all emotion in this movie. You don't even recognize her. So he, you have you have Colonel Fitz, um, played by Chris Cooper. Um, he is a typical. I don't know. I guess he's in the army. Typical, um, you know, Colonel, strict, very strict. Um, yes, sir. No, sir. And then you have his wife who. I still don't know if something's wrong with her or if he's just mentally broke her down so much, but she is just completely submissive to him. 
Um, and then, you know, you have Ricky, but their, their house, when you, when he brought Jane into the house the first time and the, the mother was like, oh, if I had known he was bringing company, I would have cleaned up. I'm sorry for the mess or something like that. And the camera pans around and there's nothing in the whole room. There's like a couch and, and a table and a living room. And Jane's like thinking to herself, what are you talking about? Because she, I think she's so used to apologizing to the Colonel for everything she does. Um, he clearly runs the house. They were afraid of him. Um, it made me very uncomfortable when he came in and accused him of, um, stealing, um, because Ricky has gotten in trouble before and he just starts beating him. Um, while, by the way, while Jane is watching because the videotape has been turned on. So he was basically, uh, videotaping Jane, um, and it really, um, intimate scene when Jane finally let her guard down and she took her shirt off um, for him. And he was videotaping that. And then the father comes in and starts accusing him. And the um, video recorder falls to the ground and Jane can see part of it, you know, recording him getting his ass kicked by his father. Mm -hmm. It was was just so uncomfortable. Um, And it turns out um, he was just showing him his Nazi memorabilia, which that was a little weird to me too, but that, that whole, anytime they showed even, even Ritz, uh, even Ricky's room, Ricky's whole room was just cold to me. The whole, like Mm -hmm. you said it perfect. The whole house was cold. It was white and cold. I mean, it was just, I didn't like it. It was just very, it was not, you could tell he was not brought up in a happy home. And if I want to add to that unhappiness, like the, while watching Mrs. Fitz, like the one thing that shot to mind for me is that I'm like, she has observable catatonia, which is people who have a severe <laughs> um, unresponsiveness, if you will, when you try to talk to them and they have that million mile stare going on yeah. and you can't seem to break through that. And here, like, that can be caused from a number of different things, including like strokes and damage to the brain. But when I was thinking about the the abuse that you see Ricky undergoing, I'm wondering if the father has, this is, this is hard to talk about, but if he's like beat the wife so badly over the years, whether mentally or physically, that that's the end state that she's in. And the only time of lucidity we see from her is when her son is doing the thing that she, I'm not going to say that she didn't have the strength to do because I imagine she does, but Ricky is escaping the house and she just looks at him clear as day, make sure to wear a raincoat. Right. Right. She, she knew it was raining outside. She was oriented to time and place and she snapped too. that is like the most character you see out of that performance. Yeah. Right there. And then, and like, that was for me, that was another powerful moment in the film where I'm just like, things have like just shit has hit the fan. These yeah. families are reaching mock speed in terms of like their trauma that's going on. Kids are running away, you know, yeah. Uh, just, they're running away they're they're there's offering you know they're offering to kill their dads and all kinds of stuff is, hap- is happening we haven't even gotten to the main the main um nitty-gritty in the final act when it comes to colonel fitz and lester i mean that was just uh, the first time i saw that i was just what 
what happened? I mean, (laughs) it's, um, yeah. And hopefully everybody who's listened, who's listening to this has seen this movie. It's obviously it's way past spoilers, (laughs) spoiler alert time. Um, but yeah. So when, when Colonel Fitz, you know, goes over there in the rain and, and, um, he thinks that Lester is gay and, um, he goes to kiss him. I mean, that was just like, whoa. So this whole time, Colonel, you know, when he was backing up a little bit, there were, there's two neighbors that were, you know, next door to the, um, Burnham's um, a gay couple. And every time they're, they're running by, you know, the Colonel says negative things about them and, and, you know, it's just, it's just horrible. But the whole time he was masking that, that he had feelings for another man. Um, yeah. And then he was, he was, um, you know, basically told he was rejected by Lester and he just, I mean, you could see a little part of him just snapped at that point. Like he was just ultimately mm-hmm. humiliated. Um, and he just, he didn't even say a word. He just left. And, you know, that's what ended up with the, you know, final scene. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you, you, you feel for all these characters, even the, even the worst characters. I mean, the Colonel is not a great character, but you feel for him because again, he is one of the people who's putting on a show, you know, he, he's not, he, he's not his, his true self. He's not showing his true image to other people. And you feel sad. You feel sad for all these people because all of them are clearly struggling and they're not happy with who they Mm -hmm. are. And it feeds into the whole keeping appearances for the sake of appearances and the physical rot that does not only to our, I would say literally to our insides, but mentally to us as well. And this, and that's where I'll double down here and say, I think in an alternate, you know, Marvel timeline universe kind of thing, if they ever did make a prequel film for this where we got a better vignette on what's going on with all these people and why they are the way they are like clearly you can see trauma has played a role especially in colonel fitz's life and for him to be repressing the fact that he is a gay male and that he has attractions for other men but he has had to closet that away under the guise of bravado and toxic masculinity if you will to to show the world that he's tough and that he resolves thing with resolves things with his fists and not compassion or his words of which i think are two of the manliest things that you can do in this world when you can connect with your feelings and actually talk and can convey what's going on with you that's that's something i process with all my kids especially those who have like severe anger issues and i want to say that that part right there with the whole keeping with appearances, this whole murder that happens at the end is because, you know, the colonel's watching, you know, through the window as his son goes over to sell some more pot to, to Lester. And Lester's sitting down on like a fluffy chair in his garage with his ha- hands behind his, his head, like he's just relaxing and spacing out. And all the father can see is an obstructed view of the two of them through two separate windows where it looks like Ricky is like flating the Lester. And that's what motivates the father to snap right there. 
and to go over there and proposition Lester with his with himself. And like you said, when he gets turned down, you that and another like very intense performance there. You see that snap happen where he just cups his face and just walks out into the rain and the way they shoot that and how he just disappears out of frame is again, it just adds this haunting aspect to the cinematography of this film for such a suburban normal environment. There's something very ghostly with the way that they shoot some of the things in this film that adds a, layer of creepiness to it mm-hmm. and a hundred percent and that scene actually had um another layer to it when he came over and he's you know crying and then you know lester's like oh hey man it's okay and he embraces him and the colonel embraces him back you never see colonel fitz hug anybody in the whole movie and he probably hasn't hugged anybody in many years because again that's not manly to him and the fact that he it was almost like he broke a little bit of his wall down for Lester. And that so that was a really pivotal moment for for that character. And that character it was brilliantly portrayed by him too. I mean, he he was mm-hmm. it was great. But yeah, it was like, oh look, he's he's actually showing a little bit of emotion for once. Um and, and then he snapped back to <laughs> back to the craziness. Um <sighs> But even like, then, sorry. even then, like you said, when he he goes out of frame, you're like, well, "Where's he going?" Okay, I guess he's just going to go back home. You don't think what's going to happen happens, especially because the beginning of the movie, you know, we already know that Lester is going to be dead. He he tells us that, um, but we just don't know how. You know, it it all leads up to this, and we've been teased throughout the movie that Jane wants Ricky to do it, that they're going to kill him and and pack up their stuff and run off into the sunset to be together and be happy. Um, so that that's kind of what they want you to believe happens to Lester. So um, that scene at the end when he just kind of disappears into the frame, you know, like, oh, where did he go? Um, I didn't put two and two together at that moment. I don't know if anybody else did, but. No, that that's something. It, it was a very foreboding scene because the film is trying to make you believe that Carolyn is going to be the one to pull the proverbial trigger on her husband because I will not be a victim. Yes. I will not be a victim. And she's sitting there in the car listening to one of her self-help tapes about image (laughs) and personality, you know, and like at that point in the film though, like everybody has screwed up so monumentously that, you know, Carolyn's no better than Lester at this point and vice versa. And, you know, if, if anything, the film does a very good job of portraying an equity of hurt, if you will, if I can speak in like a financial term there between all these characters to where not that they're justified in their wrongdoings or the things they plan or intend to do, but you can see, oh, I could see where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. This is the point they're at now. And even with Carolyn, the way they shoot that finale, it caught me off guard because unfortunately, as a kid, as I said, I had this film, I'd seen it on like TV where whether it be TNT or other places when like the film started again, aired and 
you know, all, like I said, all I could remember as a youth was I, I had an attraction to Mina Suvari, and all I knew as a teen was, oh, wow, she's really attractive. Right. There might be nudity in this film. Right. And like, right. and like, <laughs> golly, I, I look back at young John and what his metric for wanting to watch something is just, it's, it's <laughs> astounding how much we grow from the people we are. Not that it's wrong to have a healthy attraction to, to anybody, but in my mind, I couldn't comprehend the cinema that was on display at that film. All I could think of was like the advertising that I right, saw as a kid. Right. That was smart. Um, you know, they're like, oh, and, here's Mina Savari in a bathtub. <laughs> but how on the nose and accurate were they to advertise that? Because that surface level lust, if you will, is a major component of the film. And they play into that with a number of the different characters. So um, little did I know back then that there'd be a deeper lesson to be taught in watching the film. But unfortunately, because I, as I told you, I saw snippets of it on TV. I had the ending of the film ruined for me where I knew that Colonel Fitz was the man who kills him and not the wife. But even with a full fledged viewing last night or a couple nights ago, when Carolyn is walking up to the house and the way they show her walking away, looking the, the, the film plays with you a little bit where they try to make you think it was her up until the moment you see Colonel Fitz with the plastic gloves on and the blood soaked shirt. Right. But even then my brain was like, is, are they trying to like throw, throw a curveball here? Was Carolyn the one who killed him because she runs into her room and hides the purse and the hamper that had the gun in it? Right. So like, that's, I like, am I reading into that too much? Like, no. I know they make, they make it clear that Colonel Fitz did something, but could he have killed his like wife? Could there be someone like, like had, did you ever think of that when watching that no, ending? No, actually didn't. But I mean, that's, that's, that's a good point. I mean, he could have. I don't think he did because I don't think he spent more than two minutes ever with Carolyn. I don't even think they spoke much now that mm-hmm. I'm trying to think back. So I don't think that I don't I don't necessarily think he would. It, it's you know, it's feasible because it, they never showed it. Um yeah, I've never thought about that before. But I uh, no, I think that he went in to kill Lester and that's all he did because Lester was at that point he was embarrassed. I think he thought Lester was a threat to him. Um mm-hmm. yeah. But that last that last scene, not only when um Carolyn was walking, you know, in the in the rain up to that bright red door again, um the when the gunshot went off and it, it slowly showed all of our characters um, kind of like lift their head up. Like Mina Savari was in the bathroom and she like popped her head up um, almost like a deer in, in the woods. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like when he, they heard a gunshot, she was like popping her head up. And and I don't know, that whole scene was just really, really well done. I, I believe it was like a, I believe they shot it round. It, it was going round like to all the different characters and, and how they like reacted when they heard the gunshot. I thought that was really neat. But um do yeah. you think they filmed that simultaneously? Maybe that they had multiple cameras on the actors and these, like, I don't, probably not, but I'm, I was like, how cool would that be to get like an authentic reaction yeah, that from your, from cool. your, from your cast? Yeah. Um, kind of like the kids in it where they were not exposed to Pennywise the clown until that film reel yeah. portion in, in the first film to get to elicit that, that 
look of horror on their faces. Yeah, that, that would be. I don't. He probably didn't do that, but they they should do that more. I think because that's so. <clears throat> I'm going to jettison from the movie talk here for a second and just talk about my how I felt emotionally coming away from this. For a brief moment, I was like, "Damn it, Allison, you made me feel like shit." And then, like after a long work day, I was, I was, I was like, but I was like at the same time. I sat there, I'm like, I can immediately see why this film was nominated and won the awards it did because of how deftly made it is. Mm -hmm. And in hindsight now, it makes me wonder what critics, like like the Academy, the people who nominate things, and just general audiences what they see in a movie like this and what it communicates to them, either from the families they come from, or again, maybe even their own families. And I think that's something that makes this film a bit timeless in some regards, because family dysfunction is never going away. And as long as we have life as we know it, with all the trials and stressors that come with it, people will continue to do fascinating and unusual things within their family circles. Um, I'll throw that question your way. Like, do you, where, where do you think American beauty falls within like a modern pantheon of cinema as the film gets older now? I want to say it was 1999 that you said this earlier that it came out and we're now coming up on 21 years that this film has been a thing. Yeah. I think it's, if I'm doing the math track. Yeah, yeah, you are. I think it's still relatable. Um, aside from the fact that, you know, there's some dated things, you know, like the camera, whatever, but the whole premise behind the movie, it's, it's all about, um, to me, it's all about putting on a show and, and, and not being your true self and not being happy in the life that you are currently in. And so many people are in that predicament now. Um, they, they have the job that they don't like, but it's the job that they, you know, were told that they should have, or they have to have this because they, they make a lot of money and they have to keep up with the Joneses and, um, they have to look right. You know, I, I go and I get my children from soccer practice and I have all my makeup on because I can't have, you know, the other mothers can't see me without makeup and I can't look like I'm not a real person. And I don't Mm -hmm. want my friends to think that my marriage is failing or I'm not a good mother or I'm not a good father or I'm not who I portray I am. And I don't think that will ever change. I don't, it doesn't matter if it's 1999 or, you know, 2029. I think that we all can say that there's certain times in our life that we are not happy and we put on a show to either benefit ourselves or benefit others. Now we can put on a a facade for our children or, you know, just, just put on a show just because you need to, you have to put on a happy face because of that, um, situation you're in, you know, you have to be happy for a friend that's grieving and try and cheer them up, or you have to look like you're having fun, um, for your children's sake, even though you, you don't feel well, or you're, you're Mm -hmm. grieving inside things like that. That's not the same as this. These are people who do not 
necessarily know their true identity or they do and they're not happy with it. And I think that's very sad. Um, and I think a lot of people struggle with that now um, because they're either, they either feel that they're not going to be accepted by the world or by their loved ones. And they're going to shut that off from everybody. And, and I think that's very sad, but I don't think that that's going away anytime soon. So I think that you could mm. watch this movie 20 years from now and someone will still be, um, they will still find one character in this movie relatable, especially the teenagers, because yes. you will always be an awkward teenage girl, an awkward teenage boy where you don't, get along with friends, you don't feel pretty, you don't feel handsome, you don't feel loved by your parents, and you feel like the outcast. So that right there will never, will never, you know, quote, go out of style. No, and I think that's actually a really poignant way that you put that. And I want to say, given the times we live in right now with COVID-19, how much more amplified that is with people either having to be furloughed to lose their job to lose identity associated with work and things that we've strived for to have that peeled away from us. Oh yeah. And to, to be expected in some ways to cleave that off mentally and emotionally and to still, you know, play face and do the best we can. Like I, my own wife has asked me a couple of different times when I've like doubted my ability to be a good therapist. She's like, John, what would you do outside of this? Mm-hmm. And I look at her and I'm like, I honestly do not know. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I feel like I'm, I have certain giftings that lend themselves to this career field. But again, I'm not that one. I get off on a weird tangent with that, but I think that's something we all, I think, go through that and question the work we do, no matter how much training you have. But in some ways, I think in a healthy healthy way that can also be sobering at times if you know how to navigate that in a way that you don't get caught in a negative feedback loop oh, with sure, it. So sure. you got you brought up a really good point that I didn't even think of with COVID. So many people lost their jobs, um, their high profile jobs and you can kind of look at Lester. He didn't lose his job. He, you know, quit and blackmailed his boss, but you know, he was unhappy at his at his job being an advertising person. And he wanted to get a job with the least amount of responsibility as possible. Now, you could look at what we're going through now, where somebody has been laid off due to COVID and they've had to, uh, you know, basically suck it up and get any job they can just to provide for their family. And um, they could potentially be more successful in that job, not necessarily money wise, but they could be happier because they have less stress. They're home with their families more. They're not, you know, working, you know, 80 hours a week, something like that, where I think that Lester kind of, he was more successful when he went to the fast food uh, job because it seemed to make him happier in a way. Mm -hmm. And I think that if more people, um, found a job that they were happy with and good with, I think that that would help part of um, the issues that this movie raised. That would help one of the main um, reasons that a lot of people aren't happy. So and something good could have come out of, of people losing their jobs during this time. Yeah. And not that I want to be like the Debbie Downey here, but even Carolyn in response to him getting that job. 
oh, so I'm supposed to be oh, the yes. sole breadwinner. What do you expect to happen from this? And like, <laughs> and she talked to her. She carried on a whole conversation with herself. Oh my gosh, that was so typical woman. <laughs> and so like, watch watching that though, and hearing like, it, like it's just crazy the disparity that comes with trying to find work that makes you happy, but then also pays you a livable wage. Yeah. And that is, that is, a, I feel like that's a doctoral level <laughs> conversation that can happen with that, that I'm not equipped to, to hold here. Um, but, you know, yeah. But even the, that, that, even that scene when she was like, Oh, are you going to do everything, Carolyn? Yes. I don't mind. Like she's talking back to herself that's like every working mother that has to provide for their families, help provide for their families, come home, help with the kids, help with the laundry, help with the dishes, help with the food. Like she was so many women, women right there in that in that um, scene, and it was just it was just so funny. It's like so many people could relate to that. She felt mm-hmm. everything was on her, but she couldn't see that her husband potentially a normal husband could have still helped her and he probably would have been more help to her because he was now happy, but she can't see that because she only thinks about herself. <laughs> so I know. And that's st- state dependent memory is a, is a pain in the rear end because at that point, all Carolyn can remember with Lester are again, like we we're talking about the UUUs when it comes to communication, especially in like couples and family therapy you know, people are quick to launch into and you always do this. And do you remember the time you did this, you piece of shit? Right. Yeah. Right. Crazy motherfucker. Right. Like these are the kind of things that I, I encounter (laughs) from time to times. And it's just, you sit there and you facilitate and you don't judge. You present a neutral stance, but it's amazing how the brain works when it when it's been wronged and hurt and like a library card catalog it'll shoot out of the front of your head and you'll be able to thumb through all the different bad things that happen or the good things or the sad things like your brain can tap into that stuff in a very quick sequential matter at times and so (sighs) i'm getting exhausted even talking about this right now (laughs) this is this like i think I think this is a good lean and mean episode we got right here. We've talked about some pretty thought provoking stuff with this film. And honestly, for anybody who does listen to this, if anything that we have talked about tonight, um, and let me be considerate of this because this is something I was thinking about while watching it. This film is a difficult one to talk about because it can hit dangerously close to home for some of us. And I hope, and definitely my goal, even though we've had some laughter and levity here, Alice and I are cinephiles who appreciate film, but we're both deeply emotional people, clearly, as you can see from here in our chat. And we're cognizant of hurts that people go through. So hopefully something that we've talked about here has resonated in a good way and can be thought provoking in regards to watching American beauty or maybe providing you a different takeaway from the next time you watch it. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, Allison, do you have any closing shots on this film before we wrap things up here? 
Um, I mean, overall, it's it, it's a very heavy film, like you said, um, but it does make you think. Um, I don't think a lot of people can go into this movie and just sit back and just, you know, half watch it or just watch it for the characters or the performances. And although those things are very, very good, and this movie did um, – deserve all of the awards that it won, I feel that you should go in with an open mind and kind of, kind of look at the characters and, and try to get something out of it. I know I get something out of it every time I watch it. And one of the main things is, you know, look at yourself, see if you're happy, um, see if you are putting on, you know, a little act with other people. And if there's a reason why, you know, are you hiding from something? Is there something else that you can do or you can, ask somebody to help you with to make you feel a little bit happier and satisfied in your life because you need to be happy. And that is incredibly important right now. And as someone, as someone who's trying to invest in more self-care and experiences a lot of shame over doing that because of the financial constraints that come with that, may I encourage anybody listening to this that really take time I would say take to heart what Allison said there and really figure out what works for you to like ground yourself and to find some joy amidst everything going on right now. So in wrapping this up, Allison, where can people find you and your jolly gang of misfits? (laughs) My jolly gang of my boys. Um, So we are on cinemanness, the podcast.com. We have our own website. So all of our YouTube Um, episodes are on there. You can listen to us on the website or you can listen to us through Spotify um, or iHeartRadio. We have a Facebook page, Cinemadness Podcast. We have Instagram, Cinemadness, the podcast. And um, Roman is also on the Twitter. I'm not a Twitter person. I don't really get it. But you can catch us on Twitter, P. We like to say because you can't pee without thinking Cinemadness. Don't ask me why we say that, <laughs> but um, we'd love to have you um, check us out. Um, we play games. Uh, we're not as serious as John. We're not as good as as he can be. You know, we're not as smart as John. <laughs> <laughs> please, <laughs> so, uh, please. We do a lot of reviews. We love doing top 10 lists, things like that. So, you know, come on over and, and I, we can't wait to have John back on. I will vouch for their podcast. Um they they are a fun bunch to listen to and there's a joy they exude when you're in their presence recording with them and so people like you know any podcasters out there if you do hear this they are worth your support and i truly hope that you do give them a listen and you give them your time because you will get something out of their conversations don't let allison completely undersell undersell themselves there they provide some really good talking points and Allison, Roman, and Adam each have unique personalities that, for me, contribute to make it. It just makes it an easy listening experience. Aww, so, thank you. Appreciate it. You're that. welcome. Mm-hmm. That's your that's your affirmation. Thank so, <laughs> I honestly, Allison, yeah, I know. Even though we're still recording here, like, I I greatly appreciate you taking time to do this because I know you work. I know you're a mom. You have a family and it's not easy to do stuff like this on a whim. 
So I'm glad that we could meet up tonight and to do this. Me too. I will come back anytime. I, you know, I have many more movies we can talk about. I went and saw Tenet last week. So, you know, you and I do have to talk about that off the, off the air. (laughs) No, I, I've talked about that in a couple episodes already and I have not hid the fact that I've gone to the theaters and I've, I've deeply emphasized the point that I did so to the safest possible degree of my ability and making sure that the screenings I went to have like next to nobody in them. And I was a football field length away from people and yeah. the, in the auditoriums that I saw tenant in. Yeah. me so, too. And it was nice to be back. I, I miss the movies tremendously. So it is, but also think about the tremendous gap we have now until new movies oh. actually come out in theaters. We're, it's, yeah. we're looking at all of 2021, which will probably be vacant for a lot of the tentpole films that were supposed to come out even this year. Yeah. So it's very sad. And, so not that I want to be too much of a Debbie downer here, but the, the landscape of cinema as we know it in movie theaters is changing. And a year from now, we could be looking at a very radically different way with the way we consume cinema potentially. So I'm hoping I'm dead ass wrong with that. And I hope we can, in earnest get back to movie theaters and support creators and and their visions on the big screen agreed yes so on that note i will be a shill and say that you can find psychosocial cinema on the twitters you can find me on instagram and facebook i have a patreon of which adam from cinematis kindly supports me on there so thank you sir for that um i'm never not grateful for that so thank you because uh, it keeps the show in existence and alive on Libsyn and in your eardrums. So outside of that, I, I've been trying to pepper this at the end of my last couple of episodes. I'm sticking to a one episode a month routine right now. If I'm able to get more out, you will definitely be notified over social media about that. So keep an eye on those channels and with that please be good to the people around you a lot of people are hurting right now and they may not be able to convey that or in a place to share that with you so be mindful of the things that you say the way you present yourself on the internet um i shouldn't have to say these things but i think it's a healthy thing just to be reflective of at any given any given point in the day so be kind to your neighbor Thanks for listening. And Allison, live long and prosper. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye.